This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for July 9th, 2018. In the last show, I talked to Jeffrey Myron, the libertarian academic who advocates liberalizing drug laws. In this show, I'm talking to the other side, a psychiatrist and addiction specialist who makes the case against marijuana. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. And for example, on a scale of one to eight, tobacco comes in at number two. So it's very high danger. And he compares this to Grand Prix racing, to uh, serious mountain climbing and to base jumping. Okay, this is, um, this is just this is just BS, okay? No, 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 no it's not. not. This is, oh, yes, this, it is. This is ridiculous. Because well, well, allow me to finish the point. No, we, no, I'm not going to because you, you've brought up a straw man argument and, you, and you're and now you're pushing it. Listen, people don't have just a marijuana. Pro- I mean, people do. But the problem in the United States is we have an overwhelming drug problem. That's coming up shortly. But first, a couple of other things. Number one, I'm trying to expand the podcast, put more time into getting interesting guests, researching topics and so on. So to justify the time that I want to spend on that, I've launched a Patreon page where you can support the podcast if you think it's worthwhile. So I'd really appreciate it if you could go to the website and follow the links to do that. Secondly, I'm on holidays at the moment, so you might hear some background noise. That's because I'm recording this on a little recorder in a park. Anyway, there was a ballot initiative in Maine. No, no, hang on, hang on. This is serious stuff. It's important, I swear. There was a ballot initiative in Maine a couple of weeks ago to preserve the voting system that they have there that's called ranked choice voting. No, no, hang on, hang on. Honestly, this is going to be interesting. At least I'll try and make it interesting, but it's definitely important. About two years ago, the state of Maine introduced this voting system, and it's really complicated and really simple at the same time. There was a ballot initiative a couple of weeks back that could have scrapped it, but that didn't happen, so this system stays in force in Maine. To give you the simple explanation, it means that to vote for a candidate, you put the number one beside his or her name. It's that simple. Also, you have the choice. You don't have to, but you can put the number two beside the name of your second favourite candidate and three beside your third favourite and so on, all the way down. The system is so simple that even a child who can tell you what their favourite ice cream and their second favourite ice cream is, they could use it. But now here comes the complex part. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. Basically, to win, a candidate needs to get more than half the votes. That's pretty simple if there's only two candidates, but if you have several, like in a typical competitive primary, what happens if no candidate gets 50%? That's when the number two, the second favourite, comes in. The counters go to the candidate who came last. Clearly, that's not somebody who's going to win. So the counters eliminate that last candidate and move their votes to the other candidates 
according to who the voters for that candidate gave their second preference, their number two vote, two. If then nobody still has 50%, you keep eliminating the lowest remaining candidate and redistributing their votes until the top candidate does get over 50%. Normally, it's the candidate who got the most votes in the first round who wins after all of this vote distribution. But once in a while, it happens that, say, one candidate gets 45% and the next guy gets 44%, and the remaining 11% is distributed among minor candidates. And, for some reason or other, those 11% of voters strongly preferred the 44% guy, and he gets maybe 7% out of that 11 and he wins with 51% of the vote, and the 45% guy loses. Though, as I said, in practice, that doesn't end up happening most of the time. The real effect is why that usually doesn't happen. Ranked choice voting changes the way that politicians campaign. Sure, they have to appeal to their base, but they also have to appeal to the middle ground. They don't want to be the candidate that the base loves, but who alienates their non-core vote so much that they lose because no other candidate's supporters would give them a number two vote. That isn't just a theoretical effect. Ranked choice voting, also called single transferable voting, is used in a few countries around the world, notably in Australia, in Malta, and in Ireland, where I come from, it's been used for almost a hundred years and it has had a profound effect. Ireland was not alone to become an independent democratic country in the aftermath of World War I. Several other small peripheral European countries were established as democracies then, notably Spain, Portugal and Greece. And something happened in every single one of them except Ireland. In every one, democracy failed. Pretty quickly, they all became military dictatorships. In Ireland, in 1922, directly after independence, there was a bitter civil war. I won't go into the reasons, but enough to say that the two sides hated each other. The side that won became the government, and the side that lost boycotted the democratic system until they saw that that was getting them nowhere. They started contesting elections, and then, in 1932, just ten years after losing the war, they won the election. It was not certain what would happen next. This was the 1930s. Democracy was not having a good decade. Dictatorships were being set up right across Europe. The outgoing government controlled the police, the army, the judiciary, and the guys who won the election knew this well. As they entered the Parliament, they were aware that they could be arrested or worse. Just a few years earlier, dozens of their comrades, men they knew personally, had been shot while prisoners on the orders of the people they were due to take power from. Many of them hid guns under the jackets of their newly pressed suits as they went into the Parliament chamber. What did happen next was probably the most important thing in the history of Ireland as an independent country. Nothing happened. The outgoing government handed over power and went into opposition. Nobody was arrested. Nobody was shot. There was no coup.
Not that day, not later. And I believe one of the reasons that happened was because Ireland used, and still uses, the ranked choice voting system. They use it to elect a parliament with multi-member electoral districts. That makes it difficult and ineffective to try to gerrymander elections, and that means that any party losing power knows that they have a chance of regaining it at the next election. And the way to regain power is with civility. Remember that the system rewards politicians who appeal not just to their own base, but also to be the second choice of people who don't support them. First-past-the-post systems, typical in the US, push politicians towards the extremes, rewarding them for riling up their base and getting their core vote out. Ranked-choice voting pushes politicians towards the centre and rewards cooperation and compromise. And it rewards civility. Whatever is being said about it, we're certainly lacking civility at the moment, and rewarding it would be a much better way to get it than lecturing people. So remember Maine, and remember what it's called, ranked choice voting. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On a Skype line now, I have Dr. Ed Gogek. He's a psychiatrist, he's a specialist in addiction, and he wrote the book back in 2015, Marijuana Debunked, a handbook for parents, pundits, and politicians who want to know the case against legalization. You're firmly against legalization, Ed. Why? Well, I'm against legalization, although the biggest thing I'm against, which is what we're doing in the United States, is creating a for-profit corporate marijuana industry. And the uh, the biggest problem with legalization is teenage use, and this is one of the most unforgiving drugs for teenagers. You know, if I, I do not want to encourage kids to smoke cigarettes, but when people quit smoking cigarettes, if they quit at age 20, they really haven't done that much damage. Marijuana, um, even using it a few times in the early teenage years, alter, permanently alters teenage brain development. Is that uh, accepted science or is that something that you've researched? Oh, yeah. No, there's a lot of research on this. There's, there's really hundreds of studies at this point showing that uh, what well, marijuana actually imitates – the, the 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 part of the brain that actually runs teenage brain development is called the endocannabinoid system, which is what marijuana Im imitates. And so marijuana really derails the system. And so the brain doesn't uh, – the teenage years is when the brain is choosing what it's going to specialize. So it does a lot of eliminating things and then strengthening other pathways, which is why teenagers – you know, the teenagers will like – Pick up, pick up the guitar and they become expert in about six months because the brain is shaping itself around whatever you do. And that whole shaping process gets interfered with by marijuana and the brain never regains what it had. So there's one study showing that really heavy teenage marijuana users will lose about eight IQ points, which is a huge amount. What you've done there is you've given a fairly good case for not using marijuana, especially if you're a teenager. That's right. not the same as making a case for having marijuana illegal, is it? Right. Um, but, well, the, well, in a way it is because any time that you legalize a drug, teenage use goes up. There's really no way around it. 
in, in the you know the biggest problems we have as far as teenage use are alcohol and tobacco, and that's because they're legal, they're available everywhere. People, you know, when they ask um, in the states, when they ask kids, uh, what are the easiest drugs to get? Uh, alcohol and tobacco are always on top, and then comes marijuana, and then the really illicit drugs they always say are very very hard to get. Mm-hmm. It's just much it's much harder to get an illegal drug than a legal drug. The marijuana industry has done it. An amazing job of convincing people that legalization will somehow make it harder to get a hold of, and and it's not true. Yeah, you know, we've seen it in this country. The states that have passed medical marijuana laws are the states with the highest rates of teenage use, and the states that have not passed those laws are the states with the lowest rates of teenage use. The the one the one thing though that I want to distinguish you, and I'm not accusing you of this, but some anti-drugs activists that I've talked to before have, I think adopted a intellectually dishonest position whereby mm-hmm. they argue that drugs cause harm which in some cases certainly is unquestionably true mm-hmm. but they then argue on the basis of that that drugs should be illegal and there is a missing step in that logic because the totality of the harm of the drugs being legal shouldn't be compared with not using drugs. This, it should be compared with the totality of the harm of having that drug illegal and possibly still available, perhaps at a lower level, perhaps not. Would you agree with that intellectual point? Right, because that's when they always bring up, they always say, well, what about the harm of making it illegal, that people get arrested, they have a criminal record? Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's a reasonable argument. Uh, it turns out you know, that there's there's ways to deal with that. Uh, and what the United States has done up and did before this whole push for legalization is we had what I would call de facto decriminalization. Basically, the laws are on the books and not not enforced. Oh, I'm going to challenge you on that. I'm going to challenge well, you I'm on saying, that. No, they said not enforced that much. Okay, hold on for a second. There, since essentially since about 1980, there's been an explosion in the U.S. prison population. It has increased almost fivefold. So that's to say right, for every right. one person who was in prison in 1980, right. there are now five people in prison or in some form of uh, incarceration. Right. There has also been an explosion in the number of drug arrests. Okay, those are two totally separate things. They're two totally separate things. Totally but they, separate but how, things. Yes, but they are Is both. They, both of them are related to no, the legality. No, they're related to the legality of the, or otherwise of the drugs. I, I if the drugs, if yes, if the drugs were illegal, clearly nobody would be imprisoned and nobody would be arrested for Wrong. that. Wrong. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, okay, okay. So, first of all, my first question is: Is it the case that, say, since 1980, there's been a sharp drop no, off no, no. in Let the use respond. of drugs? Let me respond to the whole thing, okay? okay? Okay. So, the arrests. Now, there are some drug arrests that are caused by sting operations and by police intentionally looking for them. But most drug arrests, and I've worked in prisons a lot, and so mm-hmm. I, I always ask people. Whenever anybody tells me that they were went to prison for for drug possession, I always ask them how they got caught. And here's the story. Mm-hmm. Most drug possession arrests are made when somebody is stopped or arrested for an entirely different thing and searched. Mm-hmm. And the reason is most criminals are substance abusers, and 
when they they've done a study where they they've done these studies in the United States where they actually drug test people who are arrested half of them test positive for marijuana my drug using patients carry their drugs everywhere so it gets found so 80% of all drug arrests are solely for possession but when you look at who's in prison fewer than f- fewer than 1% of the people in prison are there for drug possession and it's actually probably even lower than that because when i talk to people who are they've usually pleaded down basically what they tell us is they don't really send people to prison solely for drug possession, and that's pretty much true. Not perfectly true, but very, very close to it. And so if you freed everybody from U.S. prisons who were there for drug possession, you wouldn't change mass incarceration at all. Uh, And there's a study that just came out, and they found that uh, the United States actually imprisons about the same percent of people for drug crimes as most other countries. We actually f- okay, that's a false comparison, and I read that on your Twitter feed. But I think that that it's a flawed comparison because the U.S. prison population is enormous. So to so it's so no, no, so to no, 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 to, so to compare like- the proportion is not to compare the absolute numbers. No, 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 it's, no, no. It's the proportion of the population of the po- population of the prison population. Of the population in general. So hold on for a second. The US has less than 5% of the world's population. It has more than 22% of the world's prisoners. So Our prison population is because we have such a high rate of violence in this country. That's what the, that's what this study came out with, and it's true. Uh, half of all the people in U.S. prisons are there for violent crimes. The reason we have mass incarceration is because under Ronald Reagan, they passed all these laws like three strikes laws, and they lengthened sentences, and they got rid of parole, and they brought in mandatory minimums for everything. Mm-hmm. And so when I work in prison, I will see people there doing 10 years for a violent crime that – Maybe they should – in another country, they might have gotten six months for. That's the reason we have mass incarceration. It has nothing to do with people in prison for drug crimes. Can, can, I, can I stop? Can I pause you on that? Because I think there's a flaw in that in, well, in, 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 in that train of logic. Because – too from where we need to go on the, on the big problem. That's true. No, but I, but I think that, that's flawed because illegality of drugs causes – a whole ecosystem of other crimes. And this is what happened uh, during Prohibition. Prohibition lasted, I think, 13 years. It ended uh, more than 90 years ago. But we still have the organized crime gangs that got their foothold during the Prohibition era. There was a massive increase in murders. There was a massive increase in a whole lot. It was not. That is not true. Okay, hold, hold on. Just hold, 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 hold for the point. No, you, no, you are you are spouting things that are simply not true. No, there's a New York Times article about this, and you can look it up. It was called. In fact, prohibition actually worked. During prohibition, the murder rate went flat. It increased before prohibition and it increased afterwards. It stayed flat during prohibition. Drunk, you know, disorderly conduct arrests dropped by two thirds. A lot of crime went down. The only thing that went up is that sort of organized crime thing. Yes. But that, but the but the most the most crime in general went down during prohibition. But I don't want – I'm not proposing that anyway. And listen, you're arguing all this stuff. Let's get back to the basics of marijuana is harmful. You're bringing up arguments that are just plain wrong. In fact, anything, our mass incarceration today is mostly the result of more available drugs, although half of it is still alcohol when I talk to people. 
But most of mass incarceration are you – know, the people who are there are these people who – they have no idea that they really have a substance abuse problem. They get to prison for you – know, they get drunk or high. They commit a violent crime. They end up in prison. They think they're cured because they stop using in prison. Mm-hmm. They get out. They get drunk or high again. They commit another crime, and they get to be you know, 50, 60 years old, and they can't figure out why they're going in and out of prison over and over again, and no one's treating them for that. And Ed, that is Ed, Ed pause on that. Ed, I, want to, I just want to move on a little bit from that. So first of all, I would be willing to concede that there are negative effects of marijuana, of using marijuana. I think that's beyond question. There might be some, you know, fundamentalist Bob Marley fans who think that every ill in the world can be cured by marijuana. And I think that's nonsense. But on the other side, I think there is a degree of reefer madness, as one particular author put it, in blaming all of the ills of the world on marijuana. And well, the that, first thing, the first thing. Well, 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 oh, that's a straw man argument. No, no, no. no. I, well, allow me to finish the argument first. So, first of all, it is, you would agree, it is significantly difficult to assess the comparative danger or the comparative risk of using different drugs, some legal, some illegal, because of the clandestine nation, nature of illegal drugs, because of the different rates of use, and it's difficult to, to assess that. But this has been done by uh, Russell Newcomb in one study in the UK, and I'll post the link for this. But he essentially categorizes from one to eight the risk of various different drugs and then compares it to different uh, leisure activities, diseases, uh, and so forth. And for example, on a scale of one to eight, tobacco comes in at number two, so it's very high danger. And he compares this to Grand Prix racing, to uh, serious mountain climbing, and to base jumping. Okay, this is um, this is just this is just BS. Okay, no, 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 no it's not. This is oh, yes, this, it is. This is ridiculous. Because well, well allow me to finish the point. No, no, I'm not going to. Because you, you've brought up a straw man argument, and, you, and you're and now you're pushing it. Listen, people don't have just a marijuana. Pro- I mean, people do, but the problem in the United States is we have an overwhelming drug problem, and they keep the news media keeps wanting to look at it. You know, now it's an opioid problem. Well, you, when you work in the jails and prisons, there's still a huge meth problem. There's still a huge alcohol problem. We have an overall problem. And I'm going to say that my biggest complaint about marijuana right now, you know, if they want to decriminalize it or even legalize personal use but not create an industry, I would be okay with that. And that's that's the main message I want to get out right now is that they are creating a, a profit-driven uh, corporate marijuana industry that is going to do exactly what the tobacco industry did, which is target children, advertise, and lobby politicians so that they can push this drug as much as they can on the American population, which is what the alcohol industry has done, which is what the tobacco industry has done. And we're going to have a huge marijuana problem. And marijuana is not a good addition. It's not going to be marijuana instead of other drugs. It's mar- I, I see these patients. It's marijuana in addition to other drugs. And that is a real problem. So, as far as I'm concerned, the you know we don't. I'm not. I'm not at this point. I'm not as concerned about legalization as I am about creating a corporate marijuana industry. And that I think is the worst thing that we're doing in this country. How, how do you see a model where you would have legalization but not a corporate legalization? I believe Uruguay has done that. They've not, they've done it. It's all. It's completely run by the state. Uh, which is, and that was the proposal in Canada, which they, mm-hmm. 
you know, they, it was kind of a bait and switch. The, uh, there's a research institute up there that came out with this model and said this would be safer. Uh, their, their research was really, really flawed. I went into that. In fact, it was just dishonest. But they came out with the idea of something where it's run by the state. There is no advertising. It's kind of like the, um, the state store system they have for hard liquor in some of the states here mm-hmm. where – can't be advertised. It's got to be. It can only be sold through certain stores. They're really strict about carding, and you know, if you're a teenager in those states and you want to, you want to drink. You don't drink hard liquor. Well, they could do that with marijuana. They could have a, or, or they could, they could, um, they could even do a process with, um, you know, basically decriminalize or legalize small amounts of personal use, but simply do not legalize the sales. So that way you don't get advertising, you don't get corporate, um, you don't get corporations. And what, what we're doing right now is we're setting up all these really strict standards that actually create corporate uh, marijuana industry. And now these these uh, just mar- to elaborate to elaborate on that is what you're saying that these really strict standards are difficult to meet for very small producers. Yes. Therefore, that yes. pushes the uh, production to larger scale operations. Yeah, and it gives them a benefit because they've got, you know, as larger scale, they can they can make things a bit cheaper and they can they can make more money that way. Plus, now we've got the, all these medical marijuana businesses, they are starting to write the proposition. So in Arizona, we just barely defeated this proposition, and one of the things in it was that instead of the state um overseeing the marijuana industry, it would be overseen by a marijuana commission and Three out of seven of the people on the marijuana commission had to be people from the industry. So they, you know, that's this thing called regulatory cap, regulatory capture, where mm-hmm. the industry takes over the regulation. Well, they wrote regulatory capture right into the state law. Um, one thing, I think we have a section of listeners who are libertarians and they're probably having a fit at the moment at the idea of a government-controlled uh, marijuana industry. But I just well, want to focus on, yes. one, on, <laughs> on one particular issue. And I've just come across, and I had it in my notes, that 31 million people have been arrested on drug-related charges. So approximately one American in 10 has an arrest record for uh, drug-related charges. And that's overwhelmingly, as I understand it, possession. Right. Isn't there a very significant, isn't there a very significant damage, even getting arrested with, if you never get charged, if, you know, the the cop takes your stash, dumps it, or maybe keeps it for himself, uh, but you've got an arrest record, that's, extremely serious for the employment prospects for a lot of people, isn't it? Okay. Listen, I've been through this myself. And I, uh, so I will speak to that. And I, I did in the book, I, in the book, in the book, Marijuana Debunk, there's a whole section on how we should handle this so that people are not harmed by an arrest or even less than that. You know, I, I was a heavy pot smoker as a kid. Um, I actually got turned down from a job because, you know, it was, it was a prison job. You had to tell all your story. I told mm-hmm. them. And they said, oh, you've got a drug problem. You can't do this job. And I couldn't appeal it or anything. It was crazy uh, because it's stuff that I did 40 years ago. But so I, I think, yes, I, I don't like I don't like the – but you know what they do like in New Jersey, they, there's a lot of things that you can do. 
Um, you can expunge the record. You can you can make the record automatically expunging. Uh, for harder drugs, you can say once they show that they're in recovery. It, it, there's a lot of things you can do besides legalizing it to make sure that people aren't harmed by that. They the the, the pro legalization community they just use it as an excuse to legalize. But there's lots of ways that you can uh, get rid of the harm that that causes. But I also want to say there's also a use for this because the number one reason. Uh, my patients get into treatment is from an arrest. So what I always like to say is jail and prison and a record don't help people at all. But the threat of that does help people. Oh, wait, wait, what? 30, 31 million Americans have a drug address, a drug arrest record. What proportion Most? of those have, what proportion of those have been in any form of treatment at any time, would you say? Well, the, no, no. The question is, what proportion of those were the drugs found when they were arrested for something else? So they have an arrest record for something else. And the answer is most of them. No, the no, 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 Thirty-one million were arrested on drug-related charges. That's the figure I have. Right, and I'm telling you, most of those um, drug possessions were found when they were arrested for something else, and they were searched, and drugs were found. So but is, isn't it likely, Ed, is, Ed, 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 isn't it likely that the something else was a drug-related crime? There are a significant number of drug-related murders, but there's also a huge ecosystem of more minor drug-related crimes that exist because the drugs are illegal and would not exist, or, or they would still be crimes, but those crimes would not be happening if the drugs were not illegal. Okay, I don't have good stats on that, but that's not most of the. That's I think I think that's like ten to twenty percent. I mean, I've worked in prisons. What you mostly see, half of all people in prison are there because of something they did when they were drunk or high. It's it's uh, it's a farm. It's the effect of the drug. It's not because the drugs are illegal. It's what the drugs did. Wait, wait, what, wait, what? I just want to clarify that you say that, for example, somebody gets drunk on or high, and gets in a car wreck or commits a robbery assault. or commits an assault so that ha you're saying that half of the entire prison population is in prison because of that yes that's that's found from casa colombia two-thirds of all the people in prison have a diagnosable substance abuse disorder and most of them, almost all of them, are either either there for drunk or high or because they were stealing to get money for drugs. And that includes alcohol because people, down and out alcoholics, can't work, so they steal to get money for alcohol. And that's what puts most people in prison in this country. And so that and that will not be decreased by legalizing it. That would be increased by legalizing it. You said – because I want to follow on from a point that you said there. You said that two-thirds of them have a diagnosable drug Problem. Substance abuse problem. Sub substance abuse. Okay, including alcohol. alcohol. Yeah, you will be aware of the drugs policy change in Portugal, and I think two thousand and one. So it's about seventeen years ago. What's your opinion on that? That's that's exactly what I, I Portugal. What Portugal does is fine. People don't really realize what Portugal did. They decriminalized drug possession, but that doesn't mean that they just let you go. They do a lot of coercion. If you get arrested for drugs in Portugal, you go before this board with a, psychi a psychiatrist, psychologist, and a lawyer, and they can impose all sorts of sanctions to get you into treatment. And that's what we need to be doing here: is getting people into treatment. But you can't just say, "Well, we want you to look." Somebody commits a murder because they're drunk. And I've seen this. I saw this guy who'd – I don't think he'd ever been arrested before in his life. He might have. He was doing meth. He became psychotic and he killed somebody. Mm -hmm. And then you know, the thing is the guy's not normally a murderer. But 
what he, you know, you can't just let him go. You've got he needs he needs treatment. Um, he also is going to spend some time in prison for that. There's just no way around that. Mm-hmm. But you've got so many people in for violent crimes. Half of all the people in prison in the United States are there for violent crimes. Whenever anybody talks about this, they keep talking about, oh, we want to release nonviolent drug offenders. Well, nonviolent drug offenders are drug dealers. And those are people who are that's that's who's in prison is the drug dealers. They don't put a lot of drug possessors in prison. And so we, if we want to deal with the violent crime epidemic, we've got to do treatment and we're not doing enough treatment. And that is that is the other big thing. But the thing is, you're not going to get these people into treatment just by offering it to them. The criminal justice system is actually in a very good position. And this is what the this is what a lot of my patients I see. They get arrested and it's like, well, the drug charge is not a problem. They just want them to get treatment for that. The problem is they also have a DUI or they also have an assault. That's what's going to get them in trouble. So can, can I can I put this- you then um, at the the position that I know a lot of libertarian uh, people will be shouting at their phones or whatever device they're listening to this on, yeah, yeah. which is that you're right. There is negative outcomes from smoking marijuana. People will argue back and forward how great they are. I don't think anybody could justifiably argue that there is greater harm from marijuana than there is from alcohol, and alcohol is legal. But, and although that doesn't necessarily prove, that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily prove anything. But, but, but hold on, hold on, no, let, let me finish the point. No, no, let me no, finish you just the point. Made an argument. No, listen, listen, you keep making arguments you keep making multiple arguments and then just letting me answer once. Let oh, me okay. just say. Well, let, let, me make, let me make one causes, argument. Let me one, make one no, argument. No. You, you made that once. So you're going you're to have to live with that. So marijuana is harmful in its own way and it's not a substitute for alcohol. People are using marijuana mm-hmm. in addition to alcohol. And marijuana is very, very, very harmful for uh, the teenage brain. And we need some way to – to stop teenagers from using it. And the biggest way is to not legalize the sale of marijuana. Okay, let, let me make, let me make the, the point that I was making. You, there are undoubted downsides to marijuana. The point, however, is that for an adult, not necessarily for a teenager, there is no justification for the government saying that it's harmful perhaps to you or it's harmful perhaps just to somebody else. Therefore, I'm going to control your behavior. What do you? So you're 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 the libertarian here. <laughs> no, I'm putting that argument to you. I, I yeah. in in some oh, cases I would go with libertarians, yeah. in some cases I wouldn't. Yeah. What I'm saying. Well, okay. Here's my answer: is that there is no way right now. Well, for, let me back up one thing. First of all, we keep getting this argument between legalization and criminalization, and I would like to see a system that's really focused on looking at substance abuse as something that we need to treat. And that the entire criminal justice system should be pushed into getting to people into treatment. But what I would say to people like that is there is right now we do not have a way to legalize marijuana for you, the adult, without also increasing teenage use. Is it really so important? To, you know, you you you. You're not separate. Libertarians love to think that we're all little islands by ourselves, but we're not. There simply is no way to legalize marijuana for your libertarian listeners without increasing teenage use. And are people so selfish that they absolutely have to use drugs knowing that other people are going to have their lives affected? Teenagers who use marijuana 
earn less as adults. They are drop out at twice the rate. They are much less likely to finish college. They are much less happy with their relationships as adults. They're more dissatisfied with life. It permanently alters the brain. They don't have this. Their lives are simply not as satisfying. And we're doing that to millions of kids right now. And they're getting this message because there is advertising for marijuana right now. And we know that kids who see marijuana advertising are twice as likely to try the drug. So that's my question. Do you, is it really that important to you as an adult to use marijuana that you want to affect millions of kids this way? Because that's what you're doing. Ed Gogek, I'm going to leave that as a rhetorical question. Dr. Ed Gogek, psychiatrist, specialist in addiction and author of Marijuana Debunked. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. That was a good place to end. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to Ed's books and articles. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Ed Gogek at Ed Gogek, and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. And I now have a Patreon account, so if you'd like to support the podcast, I'd really appreciate that. All the details are on the website. Coming up next Monday, that's July 16th, I'll be talking about US-China relations with Helen Raleigh, an author and international affairs specialist who grew up in China but is now based in the US. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.